You can be seated. Could have gotten really interesting. I have my notes on an iPad and it just tried to force me to do an update right now. Could have gotten interesting. Thankfully it didn't. The series for the summer we're calling The God Who Lives. And we're looking at stories in the lives of Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings because they offer us a picture of reality that goes deeper. Often we live in the world as though it's flat. Not that the globe is flat, but that reality is, that it's two-dimensional, that all that exists is what we can see and taste and touch. But the reality is that things go far deeper, that there is a God who lives. And these stories help invite us into a world that's in three dimensions again. Before we hear the story for this morning about Naaman and his healing, I want to invite you to pray with me. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find freedom. And in your way that we find peace. So come and shine upon us, we pray, that we would see you this morning and learn to follow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So one piece of background that will be helpful as we begin, uh, Aram is a neighboring nation of Israel. They were to the north and a little bit to the east. It's modern-day Syria, so Damascus was part of it, if you can picture that on a contemporary map. It's a neighboring nation with whom there was often tension and often war, Um, and a couple of characters that will show up will be from Aram this morning. So as we open the scriptures, I want to invite you to do whatever you need to do to listen well, to not just hear, but listen well to these words from the book that we love. Naaman, a great general for Aram's king, was a great man. He was highly regarded by his master because through him God had given victory to Aram and he was a mighty warrior. But he had leprosy. Now, raiding parties from Aram had gone out and captured a young Israelite girl and brought her back, and she was serving Naaman's wife. And the girl said to her mistress, If only my master could come before the prophet who lives in Samaria, he would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman told his master what the young girl from Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go ahead, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman went, and he brought along ten kikars of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. And he brought the letter to Israel's king. It read, Along with this letter, I'm sending you my servant Naaman so that you might heal him of his leprosy. When the king received the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, What? Am I God that I hand out life and death? And this king writes to me asking to heal a man of his leprosy? 
you must realize he wants to start a fight with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king had torn his clothing, he sent word to him and said, Why did you tear your clothes? Send this man to me. Then he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman arrived with his horses and chariots and stopped before the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent out a messenger and said to him, Go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and become clean. But Naaman went away with anger. He said, I thought for sure he would come out, that he would call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the bad spot, and cure the leprosy. Are not the rivers in Damascus, the Abana and the Farpar, far better than any river in Israel? Couldn't I wash there and become clean? So he turned and proceeded to leave in anger. But Naaman's servants came and spoke to him. Our father, if the prophet had asked you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? But all he said to you was, wash and be clean. So Naaman went down and washed in the Jordan seven times, just as the man of God had said. And his skin was restored like that of a young boy's, and he became clean. And he returned to the prophet Elisha with all his attendants, and he came and stood before Elisha, and he said, Now I know for certain that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, I swear on the life of the God I serve that I won't accept anything. Naaman urged Elisha to accept something, but Elisha still refused. So Naaman said, If not, then let your servant have two mule loads of earth, for I will never again offer burned offerings or sacrifices to any other god except the Lord. But forgive your servant this one thing. When my master comes into Rimmon's temple to bow down there, and he is leaning on my arm, I must also bow down in Rimmon's temple. When I bow down in Rimmon's temple, forgive your servant for doing that. And Elisha said, Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. 
So one of the really interesting things about these stories in the Bible where God shows up is that whenever God's kingdom bursts into the world and begins to shine around us, it's always accompanied by something that's been called the great reversal. That in God's kingdom and by God's ways, things are upside down and inside out. Jesus, you've heard say that the last will be first and the first will be last. He said, if you want to be greatest in the kingdom, you must be servant of all. And in fact, when Mary finds out that she's pregnant with the son of the most high God, she being no one important in the world herself, she bursts out into song in Luke chapter 1. And she says, God has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He's pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He's come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors ancestors. The great reversal, the proud and the mighty torn down, the weak and the lowly raised up. And it's not just a Jesus thing. It's not just a New Testament thing. It's throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament too. Arguably, Mary's song is just a remix of the song Hannah sang in 1 Samuel 2 when she, though barren, was given a child and rejoices in that gift She says, the bows of mighty warriors are shattered, and those who were stumbling now dress themselves with power. Those who were filled full now sell themselves for bread, but the ones who were starving are now fat with food. The woman who was barren has birthed seven children, but the mother of many sons has lost them all. Upside down and inside out. Whenever God shows up, we see this great reversal. And we see it in our story this morning, too. This is the story of Naaman's conversion. And as part of that conversion, we see the great reversal that takes place in his life and in his heart when he comes to meet the living God. Let's look at the story and I'll tell you what I mean. It opens up and we're introduced to Naaman, to a general and the king of Aram, a great man, highly regarded by the king, a mighty warrior. He's had great success. He's filthy rich from the giant gift he brings to Elisha later. He has everything that matters in the eyes of the world. But no matter how high he pulls himself up by his own bootstraps, no matter how many battles he wins, how many medals decorate his uniform, how much wealth he brings back from war and raiding, There's one thing in his life over which he has no control at all, and it haunts him day after day after day. Leprosy. We're introduced then to another character who's quite different. It's a servant girl. We find out that she was taken from her home in Israel by a raiding party. If you remember the story a few years ago of the girls abducted by Boko Haram in Nigeria, there's been a few stories that's been happening again. It's a similar thing. Armed forces swing through grabbing whatever they can, including children, to take back into slavery. She's separated from her homeland. And if her family wasn't killed before her eyes in the raid, she is at least separated from them now for the rest of her life. And this little girl just so happens to be a servant for Naaman's wife, having to serve in the house of the general that planned, if not executed, the raid that brought her there. But as we're introduced to this little girl, we find that she is not 
relishing her master's disease, that she's not wishing him worse, but that she actually says to her mistress, I wish that my master could come before the prophet who lives in Samaria back in Israel, for he could cure him of his leprosy. Against all logic, she's actually concerned for him and offers the path that will lead to his healing. Why? We might be tempted to think it's just Stockholm Syndrome, that she's been kidnapped for so long she's come to have regard for her captors and to love them. But I don't think so. Because from the very beginning... From back when God called Abram, before his name was even Abraham, the whole point of God working through this family was to bless the nations through them, was that they would be a light to the world, that they would draw the Gentiles in to meet God. And what's more, this story was written down. It didn't happen, but it was written down while Israel was off in exile when they themselves were prisoners in a foreign land trying to figure out what it means to live faithfully now in a new place. And it was there that the Lord's word came to Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry your sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too can have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Don't decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you will prosper. I think what this little girl is doing is fulfilling Israel's calling in a foreign land to bless all the families of the earth, to be a light to the Gentiles, to draw them into what God is doing, to seek their peace and to pray to the Lord on its behalf, to seek its flourishing. And it works. This servant girl says these things to Naaman's wife. She says them to Naaman. Naaman says them to the king. And soon enough, the general is traveling to Israel with an immense entourage. The nations have been drawn in by her witness. Her prayer has grabbed the people in to go and meet God. And then they meet the king. This lowly girl has accomplished all this. And the king, high and mighty and proud, reads the letter and tears his clothing in despair. He knows nothing of God or God's ways or God's prophet who could do something about this request. He assumes it's about himself and that he's been backed into a political corner and he despairs. What was it Paul said? God chose the weak to shame the strong. God chooses the lowly things, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. It's the great reversal. And yet at this point, Naaman is still unconverted. Naaman is still proud and mighty. He just changes course and heads from the capital out to meet Elisha. He arrives there at the house coming with with horses and chariots, with lavish gifts and stops before the door of the prophet's house, a powerful foreign dignitary with an entourage this immense camped out in front of your house. This is impressive as impressive gets. 
And what Naaman expected was for this show of his might and importance to compel this powerful prophet to come out and stand before Naaman to serve him with his religious goods and services, with magic in exchange for a cost, and heal him. He says to come out and call on the name of his Lord and wave his hand over the bad spot and cure him of his leprosy. No one had been able to cure his leprosy anywhere. This was supposed to be a powerful prophet, a man who could get things done. Surely he could do something powerful and mighty, impressive to heal this disease. And yet, Elisha won't even come out of the house. Naaman is angered at the slight to his status and his importance that a messenger would come out to meet him and not the man himself. And the messenger's instructions are mundane and simple. Go and wash in the Jordan River. That's it. You don't have the decency to come and speak to me yourself and all you think it's going to take is to wash in some dirty Israelite river. You don't think I've tried that? There are beautiful, snow-cap-fed rivers back in Aram, and you want me to wash in the Hackensack? Seven times? And you think anything's going to happen other than the disease get worse? But the best indication that what Naaman is dealing with is his own pride is the response of his servants. They come to him, I'm sure, with some fear and trembling and say, Our father, um, if the prophet had asked you to do something difficult some grand, epic, dangerous quest, wouldn't you have done that? So why not follow his simple instructions? Wash and be clean. The problem is he thought that washing in the Jordan was below him. He wanted an epic, dramatic healing story. He wanted to maintain his status and importance. He was above washing in some second-rate Israelite river. But did you notice again, it's the words of the servants that speak wisdom. The weak will shame the strong. And for some reason, Naaman is moved and responds. And it says, goes down to the Jordan River. And I think that's more than a geographical distinction. He goes down, he lowers himself, he humbles himself finally and washes. And that's where his conversion begins. He accepts Elisha's foolishness, God's foolishness. He goes to wash to carry out a simple and ordinary task. Six times nothing changes, but the seventh time he comes up and his skin has been restored, and not just restored, but restored like a young boy's, cleansed more dramatically than he ever could have dreamed was possible. And there are hints that more has happened than just his cleaning. A conversion has taken place, and the first hint is the skin. It's now like a young boy's because he has become like a child. Like the servant girl who first pointed him towards faith or like the children Jesus speaks of in Matthew 18 when he says, I assure you that if you don't turn your lives around and become like little children, you will definitely not enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who humble themselves like this little child, they will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The next hint is that when he comes back to Elisha, he comes back with a decidedly different posture. He comes back and instead of sitting on his horse and chariot, instead of expecting Elisha to come and stand before him, he stands before Elisha as a servant. 
He gives up his status. He lowers himself to the role of servant. And this time Elisha does come out and meets Naaman, this new convert full of all the enthusiasm of new faith because Naaman has one more thing to learn and one more step to take in emptying himself. Naaman offers Elisha that immense amount of silver and gold and expensive clothing to repay him for the miracle received. But Elisha refuses. Naaman insists. Elisha refuses again. And we might wonder why. When Israel was rescued out of slavery in Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians. They accepted those gifts and took them with them. Why not do the same here to a foreigner? Why not take all the money and give it to the poor? Why not take it? Because there's another lesson for Naaman to learn. Grace is free. The whole point of grace is that you can't pay for it. You can't earn it and you can't repay it. It's free. Naaman had emptied himself pretty far already. He'd embraced the foolishness of washing. He'd taken the role of a servant, but he still thought he could pay God back for the miracle of grace. He offered a king's ransom to pay God back and in a way try to even the scales. Because the strange thing about grace is that in a weird way, it puts us in debt. This is why you don't take favors from the mob, in case you didn't need to know that already. Because they do you a favor and you're going to have to do them a favor. You're in their debt and you don't know when or how they'll call it in. And in a weird sort of way, I think that's why we don't really like grace. Down at our core. Because it puts us in God's debt. If we can't pay God back for what God has done for us, then we don't control our own lives. If we could pay the price, then we could remain independent. We'd be saved, but we could go off and live our lives however we wanted on our own. But if it's really grace, if we can't possibly repay God, then we're going to forever be in God's debt. And that means God can ask us to do anything. Paul understood that well. He says in various places, we've been ransomed out of slavery to sin and death. But he refers to himself and us now as servants or slaves. It's the same word doulos in Greek. Slaves of Christ. That's what we are, slaves of Christ. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Naaman wanted to pay for the miracle. He wanted to balance the scales, to go home free and be able to get back on with his life. But Elisha refuses because there is no gift large enough to repay God. It's grace. It's free. No amount of financial generosity can pay for your soul. No number of worship services attended can pay Jesus back. No number of community service hours can pay off the debt you owe God. No amount of being a good person or following the right religious rules and regulations, no matter how strict they are, can pay God back. And Naaman knows that immediately. He says, okay, if not, then let your servant have two mule loads of earth. For I'll never again offer burned offerings or sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. He's asking for enough dirt to fashion an altar at home 
in the country of Aram, a place in which he can worship Yahweh the Lord because he knows that he's not his own. And so his worship and his service and his life are now for God and God only. Which is also what that whole strange bit about Rimmon's temple is about. In the course of his professional duty as the king's servant and general, he's going to have to accompany the king to the temple. Rimmon is an idol worshipped in Aram. And when the king bows down, the king is leaning on his arm. He too has to bow down. The act presumably no longer means anything to him. He's not offering service or worship to this false god, yet he still has to bow down. Notice he doesn't ask for permission. He's not asking God to bend God's laws so that it's more convenient for him to do his job. It will be a sin. He asks for pardon, for forgiveness. And he asks for it because that day he learned something. He learned that grace goes deeper than he'd thought. He learned that its river is deep and wide, that it's inexhaustible. And so, like the shrewd and dishonest steward in Jesus' parable back in Luke 16, he bets everything on grace. And he surrenders himself to it entirely. He sinks beneath the whelming flood, and in these waters of grace, he dies to sin and rises to new life so that the prophet can say, Go in peace, in shalom. Naaman's converted. He's emptied himself. He's become like a child. He's come into the waters of God's grace in order to die to himself and rise, made new and made whole, clean. His life is not his own now, but belongs to the God who lives. And all because of the witness of this servant girl and the invitation of a prophet. Wash and be clean. And so this morning we receive the same witness and the same invitation We've been pointed to the healing powers of these waters by many humble souls whose names will go unknown in the halls of power and prestige, but whose witness and faithfulness have pointed us to Jesus when we've come to the end of ourselves. And so we're invited to come and wash, to be clean, an invitation that seems like foolishness to the world, that this water can have anything to do with salvation that sprinkling babies with tap water has any greater significance or healing power, that emptying ourselves of position and achievement and pride and status and wealth is anything other than opiate for the masses. It's foolishness to baptize an infant. They don't know anything about this yet. Brooklyn hasn't chosen Jesus. She can't follow all the rules yet. She can't give her life to Christ. And yet we come, we submit, humble, empty ourselves. In the waters of baptism, there are nothing but children, because to come into them, you must become like a child. And here, in dying to ourselves, we find that grace goes deeper than all that. That in giving up any thought that we can pay the price ourselves, that we could ever choose God, that we could ever properly serve God, that's when we're healed. That's when we're cleansed of all sin, of all uncleanness. That's when our hearts are taken out as stone and replaced as flesh. That's when we are brought into new life 
We're made like little children, small in the eyes of the world, but the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then we're sent out from this place back into a foreign land to live while seeking its peace and its flourishing, to worship God and God alone, and to bear witness before the nations to the God who lives. This is the rhythm of our worship each week. We are washed in like waves from the parking lot through worship into the font and then swept back out into the world. We are gathered in by God's abounding grace and then sent out to live in gratitude. We're gathered in and invited to drink deeply of the fountains of God's grace and life and then sent back into the world. And so as it is each week, our invitation this morning is wash and be clean in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It's our privilege to come to these waters of baptism. And so we remember as we do Jesus' words in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Hear also these words from Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Baptism is the sign and seal of God's promises to this covenant people. And God promises, by grace alone, to forgive our sins, to adopt us into the body of Christ, the church, to send his Holy Spirit daily to renew and to cleanse us and to resurrect us to eternal life. And these promises are made visible in these waters of baptism. Water cleanses. Water purifies, water refreshes, and water renews. And friends, Jesus Christ is the living water. Through baptism, Christ calls us now to new obedience, to love and to trust God completely, to forsake the evil of this world, and to live a new and holy life. Yet when we fall into sin, we must not despair of God's mercy, nor continue in it, For this covenant is an eternal covenant of grace. So as we come to the waters of baptism, I want to invite our elder Robin to introduce our family to come now to be baptized. Would you come forward? I got way louder when I put my mask on. Yeah, come on. Stand right here. You guys can stand with them. Beloved of God, you want to turn me down a little? Beloved of God, I ask you before God and Christ's church to reject evil, to profess your faith in Christ Jesus, and to confess the faith of the church. Do you renounce sin and the power of evil in your life and in the world?
Who is your Lord and Savior? Will you be faithful members of this congregation and through worship and service seek to advance God's purposes here and throughout the world? Do you promise to instruct this child in the truth of God's word, in the way of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, to pray for her and teach her to pray, and to train her in Christ's way by your example, through worship, and in the nurture of the church? And as a congregation, would you stand to make your promises as well? Do you promise to love, encourage, and support this sister by, trust, by teaching the gospel of God's love, by being an example of Christian faith and character, and by giving the strong support of God's family in fellowship, prayer, and service? If so, answer, we do. And do you promise to accept the spiritual guidance of the church to walk in a spirit of Christian love with this congregation and to seek those things that make for unity, purity, and peace? Then let us confess together the words Christians believe, uh, the Apostles' Creed. It's printed in your worship guide if you need to read along. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You all can be seated. Let's pray. We give you thanks, O holy and gracious God, for the gift of water. In the beginning of creation, your spirit hovered over the waters. In the waters of the flood, you destroyed evil. You led the children of Israel through the sea and into the freedom of the promised land across the Jordan. In that same river Jordan, John baptized our Lord and your spirit anointed him. By his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ, the living water, forgives us, frees us from sin and death, and opens the way to life everlasting. We thank you, O God, for the gift of baptism. In this water, you confirm that we are buried with Christ in his death and raised to share his resurrection, that we are being renewed by the power of your Holy Spirit and united to Christ in mission. So send your Holy Spirit, we pray, upon Brooklyn, here baptized, that this water may be a spring gushing up to eternal life. Wash away her sin, raise her to new life, and graft her to the body of Christ. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon her, that she may have wisdom to discern her gifts, strength to obey your will, and joy in answering your call. To you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, be all praise, honor, and glory now and forever. Amen. So what's the name of your child? Brooklyn. Brooklyn, Brooklyn come here. Oop. Thanks. Brooklyn, for you, Jesus, came into the world. For you, Jesus, died and conquered death. All this he did for you, little one, though you know nothing of it yet. We love...
because God first loved us. So, Brooklyn, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Brooklyn, child of the covenant in baptism, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, marked as God's own forever and called to follow Christ in mission. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, look in kindness, we pray, upon these parents. Let them ever rejoice in the gift that you have given them. Grant them the presence of your Holy Spirit that they may bring up this child to know you, to love you, and to serve you. Amen. Then in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only King and Head of the Church, this sister is now received into the visible membership of Christ's body. She is engaged to confess Christ as her Savior and to be God's faithful servant until life end. So, family, new family, would you welcome Brooklyn in? Do you want to look at them? Hi. Look at everybody. It's your new family. We heard of the healing power of God's waters. That throughout the scriptures, God shows up in waters to do a number of things, to destroy evil as God washes sin away, to raise a people to new life and rescue them from slavery as God does in raising us in Jesus to abundant and everlasting life and pouring out the Spirit upon us that we may live in grace and love and serve God. And we say that all these promises are true, though she knows nothing of it yet. Because it doesn't depend on our action, on our ability to live a perfect and righteous life in response to God. But God's promises are primary and first. God's grace comes before. And so we get to see that tangibly right now as we celebrate this gift poured out in her life. And remember, if you've been baptized, the same promise has been spoken over you. The same grace is given to you. And your job now is to live into it and to remind her of it too as she grows. So can you do that? Great. And congratulations and welcome, Brooklyn. There you go. Can I go back to Mama? Congratulations. Thank you. All right. Can you take this for your sister? Keep it safe? All right. You guys can sit down. come now in prayer for one another, for our community, and for the world. So are there any prayer requests that you'd like to lift up that we can all pray for today and throughout this week? Yeah, Norma. Yeah, we've been praying for you and we'll continue to, but we'll give thanks to God the body of Christ has shown up. Anything else? <laughs> we will continue to pray for Brooklyn as we have been already. Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. We give thanks and celebrate with you too. We give thanks to God for bringing you together and for all God will do through your marriage, through your life, through your families. Yeah. For sorry? For strength and healing for those who need it. Spirit's moving back there. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you all thanks and all praise. Not only is all of creation only here because you spoke it into existence, but when we rebelled and ran away, you came into the far country to find us and carry us home. Your grace is before and beyond all that we can imagine. God, we give you thanks for this small sign of that grace in the waters of baptism. May it spring up within each of us to an appreciation that leads us to give our lives to you for all you have given to us. We pray this morning for Brooklyn and for her family that all we said and prayed would be so, Lord. Amen, let it be. And we pray for each child who has come through these waters. May we be faithful to the vows we've made to them, and may you be faithful to the vows you have made as well, that they are yours and you are theirs. Lord, we pray too for this, uh, this church. There are numerous opportunities to mourn in these coming days, and so we continue to pray for the Bowers and Leonard families. And at the same time, we give you thanks that the body of Christ has come to weep with those who weep and to support and bear one another's burdens. We give thanks that we can also rejoice today at Jordan and Gracie's marriage and their new life together. May you use them, Lord, for your purposes in the world. May their relationship be an oasis of hospitality and love and grace in the midst of a foreign land. And may they seek peace and prosperity for the world around them, serving you in all things. Lord, we pray too for strength and healing for those who need it, for there are many among us, Lord, who do. Names we know and names we don't. So, Lord, be gracious again and shine your mercy upon us. We pray for our world as well, that your spirit would go out before your church to the ends of the earth, that your kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that peace would come, that we might be able to proclaim good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, release to the captives, freedom for the oppressed as you did when you showed up, and that, Lord, the lowly would be lifted up, the hungry fed, the sick cured, that your kingdom would come. And so, Lord, may this be. And until it is, we pray the prayer that you yourself have taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.